following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, so for this morning, uh, we are going to be back in the book of Ephesians. And we started this journey last week. If you weren't here last week, that's okay. You haven't, you haven't missed too much. Uh, you're not too late to the party. It'd be a good idea probably to have a listen online. You can listen to any of our messages online, video, audio, uh, just to catch yourself up on that. Uh, we did an overview of this book of Ephesians and where we're heading in this series and uh, the, the, the overall kind of contours of the book. And we talked about how Ephesians is a letter uh, written by Paul, Paul the Apostle, uh, it's written from a prison cell. He wrote it uh, late in his, in his life, in his ministry, from a prison cell in Rome. And it's written to his friends in Turkey, in the southern part of what is now Turkey, uh, to a group of churches there, uh, including Ephesus. And this was a letter that was designed to be passed around these little house churches from church to church to church uh, in the middle of the first century to encourage them in their faith, uh, to lead them deeper into the grace of God, and to help them to understand all the ways in which the gospel then works its way out into the practicalities and the complexities and the nuances of human relationships. And so that's really the second half of the book, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. But that's kind of the broad, broad view of where we got to last week. But this week, we're going to dive into the body of the letter, and we just have this glorious passage. I mean, this is just a stunning passage, and I've just loved studying this and preparing this. Uh, and just excited to be able to kind of just lay this before us all this morning, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible. Uh, so in Ephesians 1, so if you've got a Bible, pull it out, this is the time, get that open. By the way, we've also got study sheets for this series, and we have hard copies of those now, so if you didn't, if you didn't want the online version, we've got some hard copies in the blue box at the back, you can get those. But uh, Ephesians 1, verse 3 is where we're going to start, and Amanda is going to come and read this passage for us. Thanks, Amanda. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Let me say that again. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one whom he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be, to be put into effect when the, time, when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Thanks, Amanda. So, believe it or not, everything that you just heard, uh, all 12 verses, that is all one long sentence in Greek, in the original language. So that whole passage from praise at the beginning of verse 3 to glory at the end of verse 14, that is all one big extended sentence in the, in the original letter that Paul wrote. I mean, it's broken up into about eight sentences in English as you're reading it, but when Paul wrote that, that was one massive big sentence. 201 words it comes in at. So that's a, the longest sentence anywhere in the entire Bible. Uh, so the irony is that if you, if you took a course in Ephesians at Bible college and you wrote an essay and in that essay, you wrote a sentence that had 201 words in it, you'd probably fail because it would be unreadable. But Paul writes a sentence that's got 201 words in it, and we love him for it because this is one of the most beautiful passages in all literature, let alone in the Bible. This is just overflowing with theology and poetry and imagery, all of these descriptive phrases, all of these beautiful nuanced descriptions, these soaring adjectives, these incredible superlatives that he just throws out as he describes all of the spiritual blessings that we've received from God in Jesus Christ. And he just lays them out one after another, after another, like he's serving this huge feast. He just puts it all out there in this huge extended sentence. And the passage takes the form of a blessing, that's what, that's what this is. That's how it's framed. That's the first word in verse 3. Uh, praise be or blessed be God. That's how Paul starts. The whole thing is a Jewish blessing. It's called a baraka, a blessing. And Paul talks about all, he wraps it all together as one blessing directed towards God. The whole thing is one big expression of worship. One big extended expression of praise for all that he has done and all that God is doing in our lives and in the church and all that God is yet to do. And in a sense, this passage contains within itself the whole story of Scripture. It's all here. It's all sort of this one condensed version of the entire biblical narrative, which is probably why Paul needed 201 words to get through it. This is a big, big story he's telling. It's a big, big vision that he's unfolding. And even though this is an incredibly rich passage, just one one of the richest, I think. Hard to believe this was written from a prison cell. But even though this is incredibly rich, it's also very dense, and even as you're hearing it and as you're reading it, you might find you're finding it hard to make your way through it. It can be difficult trying to figure out exactly what's going on because there's so much coming at you in this passage. There's so many descriptions, so many phrases, so many layers. It's almost overwhelming to hear this. Uh, just layer after layer of, of all of the riches that God has blessed us with. And you kind of need some way to, to find your, your way through this passage, some path through it. And what I've found is one of the the most helpful ways to think about this passage is to see it as a story. Because everything that Paul says here has this narrative flow to it. it. This is a story. It doesn't immediately strike you maybe as a story, but what Paul is describing is one big story. And it has a beginning, and it has a middle, and it has an ending. And this is the story that I've called the drama of salvation. 
This is one big story of this huge search and rescue mission that God has launched on planet earth to seek and to save his lost creation, his lost humanity. This is a story that stretches the length of history. It stretches the breadth of the cosmos. This is a huge, huge story. And Paul describes it as worship, but what he's telling is one big story. And so as we journey through this passage, that's how I want to approach it this morning. I think it's going to be one of the easier ways to walk through this passage. And we're going to look at the beginning of the story and then the middle of the story and then the ending of the story to try and get our heads and our hearts around what Paul is saying here. Okay, so that'll be kind of the structure that we give to it. There's various ways you can structure that, but this is the one we'll choose. So let's start at the beginning. We'll start with the beginning of the story. And Paul gives us the beginning in verse 4. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So where does the story start? Well, it it doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't start even with the Old Testament. It doesn't start even with Genesis 1, the creation of the world. Paul doesn't even go back to there. He goes back further than that. He goes all the way back to before there was anything. Before the creation of the world, he goes back to eternity past, before there was humanity, before there was the world, before there was the universe, before there was anything. There there was nothing except God. So that's where Paul takes us back to, the eternal past, where the only one who existed was God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in this eternal, beautiful community of love. And Paul says, it was then, in eternity past, that something extraordinary happened that kick-started this entire story. And he captures it in three simple words, verse 4. He chose us. I love the way Amanda paused over those words. He chose us. Just let that sink in for a minute. That from eternity past, God visualized in his mind all that he was yet to create, Nothing had come about yet, but God pictured in his mind's eye everything that he was yet to make, the world that he was yet to create, and all the unfolding of history down through the ages, all the generations of humanity, right down to this age, right down to this moment in time, and he looked down to your life, and he saw you, and God, as it were, reached out through time and space, and he placed his hand on your life, and he chose you. It's an incredible thought. This is what gets the whole story going, is that God reached out and he placed his hand upon your life and he said, I choose you. I choose you to be my son. I choose you to be my daughter. I choose you to be my child. I choose to be your father, to be in this relationship with you. I choose to know you and and to have you know me, to be in, in relationship, to be reconciled to me, to be part of my family. God placed his hand on your life. He claimed you. He chose you as his own possession. That's how it all starts. That's the beginning of the story. God chose you. Before he'd even made you, before he'd made a thing, he chose you. It's a strange kind of thought to us, and it sort of strikes us maybe as surprising because a lot of the time we assume that we chose God. You know, you think about it in your own life, and and most of you that are Christians, you can think back to the time when you became a Christian. And you think, well, you go back to that moment and you made a decision. You know, maybe you prayed a prayer or you went forward at an altar call, or just something happened within your own heart, and you chose Jesus. 
And you made a decision. You made a conscious decision to choose Christ. So you, you, you chose him, and yet now you read Ephesians and you realize, hang on a minute, something else was going on. Now, I thought I chose God, but it turns out here, what Paul's saying is that he chose me before he had made me. Somehow, before I chose him, he, he's chosen me way long ago before the creation of the world. So how does this work? Did I choose God or did he choose me? How does this all happen? Well, Paul describes all this with a, a theological word in verse 4, or verse 5 rather, he says, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So the word predestined or predestination, that's a word that immediately gets some people very fired up. Some of you are getting excited already. Just the mention of that word. Some people like finally been coming to church for 20 years, been waiting to hear a sermon on predestination. This is going to be my day. Finally, we're talking about predestination. Some people live for that. And I'm sorry, you're going to have to keep waiting because this is not going to be that day. This is not going to be a whole sermon on predestination. Uh, and other people get fired up in a negative way. And they're like, I don't believe in that stuff. I don't believe in predestination. That's just heresy. I don't believe in, in that, that doctrine. I don't want anything to do with that. And uh, again, you've got a problem because the word predestination is right here in Ephesians. So if you're a Christian, you really have to believe in predestination unless you want to cut out Ephesians from your Bible and Romans as well and end up with a huge gaping hole in your Bible. So it's a biblical word. It's right here. We've got to try and make sense of it. And simply what Paul means when he, when he says God predestined us, it's not, a, it's not a difficult concept to grasp. He just means that God made a sovereign choice. That's all it means, that in eternity past, God made a sovereign choice and he destined you. That's, that's the word that predestined is built around. He destined you for salvation. Before he'd created you, he destined you for his family. He destined you to be his son or his daughter. He destined you to bestow salvation upon you and give you eternal life. And Paul says, this is important, Paul says that he has done this in and through Jesus. So look at verse 4 a little bit more closely. You see how Paul says he chose us in him? That's important. So it's not that God just chose you on your own. It's not that God just chose you in a vacuum. He chose us in Christ. So in other words, before God chose you, he chose Jesus. Right? This is really central. Before God predestined you, he predestined Jesus. Before God elected you to salvation, he elected Jesus to be the bearer of salvation. Before anything, God put Jesus in the very center of the story. Before there even was a story. Before there even was a plan, God put his son in the center of the story. He chose Jesus and put him in place first. And then he chose you in him. He chose you to be included in the Messiah's family, to be included in this community that Jesus was, was bringing about through his life and death and resurrection. So, so God chose Jesus and then he chose us to be included, to be incorporated into this family of which Jesus is the head. Now, having said all of that, and that's made some friends of some of you and enemies of others, but let me say this. I don't think any of that means that your choice is unimportant. Because that's where this can lead if you're not careful, is to say, well, what does it mean, you know, what does it matter what I choose then? If God's already chosen me, if this is already a done deal, it's already stitched up, then who cares what I do? What does it matter? I could, you know, do, do what I like. God's chosen me. It's a fait accompli. And in fact, it, 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 it can get worse than that. And this thinking can lead to you saying, well, I guess then I'm predestined 
but these people aren't. And so I guess all those non-Christians, that's just the way God wants it. He predestined me, and he didn't predestine you, so tough luck. That's just how it is. That's obviously just part of God's plan. Sorry about that. And that that gets into a real us and them division, which is just ugly. I don't think that's what Paul is teaching. That somehow both of these things are true. That God made a sovereign decision to choose you for himself, and yet he gives you a genuine opportunity to respond to that choice. And we we don't fully know exactly how this works, but there are plenty of scriptures that talk about the importance of your response to the gospel, the importance of us choosing Christ. That's why John says to all who received him, to those who called on his name, that's our response. That's our choosing. So your choice is still important, but somehow in the wisdom and the providence of God, and I don't understand exactly how this, this works. I don't think Paul understood exactly how all this worked. He didn't have full knowledge. I don't think any theologian in church history fully understands exactly how this works, even though some might claim they do. But somehow in the wisdom and the sovereignty of God, God makes a, a determined choice to bestow eternal life on you. And yet somehow his choice takes account of your choosing, and he still gives you genuine freedom to accept or resist the offer of salvation so that we still have genuine responsibility and the choice you made to become a Christian was still a genuinely free choice. Somehow, we've got to hold these two things together. They feel like they're pulling apart. They feel like they can't go together, but that's only because we are human and God is God. Somehow, both of these things are true. God chose us and we choose him. And so when you become a Christian... You choose to give your life to Jesus, and many of you in the room have. But then having chosen him, you discover that you were chosen by him a long time ago. That before you started looking for God, he was looking for you. Long time before you were searching for him, he was searching for you. Long time before you started pursuing him, he was pursuing you. And you find, you thought it was all about your choice, and you find somehow all of a sudden you realize, I'm part of something much bigger than that. I'm part of a plan that's been going on from eternity past and will carry on into eternity future. And it's in the eternal mind of God. And I'm swept up and my life is caught up into something far greater than just my individual choice. Doesn't mean my choice was irrelevant, but it means it's not just me choosing, but I am chosen by God. So we can, we can argue and debate the ins and outs of this, and there's different Christians who, who see this different ways, but don't lose sight of just the beautifully simple statement that kicks it all off at the beginning of the story, those three words, he chose us. He chose us. He chose you. And doesn't that give your life far more meaning and value and dignity than just the, believing that, that you are just a collection of molecules and atoms and cells with no inherent value and purpose and meaning? I mean, that, that's the story that secular culture will tell you that you are just the result of natural processes over time. You're just a collection of molecules and atoms, so your life has no intrinsic value, no intrinsic meaning, no intrinsic purpose beyond what you give yourself. And compared to that, we have such a better story to tell, don't we? We have such a better story to tell of a God who from eternity past knew you and loved you and chose you, that you've been in the mind and the, and the heart of God since before the creation of the world. Your life has value, not because of anything you've done, not because of anything in you, but because you are loved by another, because you are loved by the living God. Your life has value because he values you. 
Your life has meaning and purpose because he values you, because he loves you, because he delights in you, because he has chosen you. That's where the meaning and the identity and the purpose in your life comes from. That is a story worth telling. That is a story our culture, our secular culture, desperately needs to hear. Our lives are are worthy because we're chosen in Christ. So that's the beginning of the story. It's a pretty great beginning. And then Paul moves into the middle of the story, and he misses out a lot of the story in the early part of the Old Testament and so on, but he brings the story right up to the present for his audience in Ephesus and right up to the present for our lives today. And he gets to the middle part of the story in verse 6. He says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, in that verse, in verse 6, who is the one he loves? It's got a capital O in my Bible, the one he loves, which is a big clue. That, yeah, at this point, Paul's not talking about us. He's talking about Jesus. That the one he loves is Jesus. God does love you, but at this moment, Paul's talking about Christ. Some of the older translations, your translation might say, uh, his beloved. He's freely given us this grace in the beloved. Jesus is the beloved of God. He's the beloved son. He's God's only child. He's God's only son, his precious son. He is the beloved of the father. And God took his beloved son and he gave him to us. He gave him into the world so that any one of us who would open our hearts to Jesus, anyone who would open their life to Jesus, open themselves up to his love and his saving power, God would give to that person an indescribable gift. And this is, this is grace. By the way, this is the gift that Paul is talking about. That God then says to that person, everything that belongs to my son, everything that belongs to my beloved, it's yours now. That you get to share in everything that Jesus has. You get drawn into it and all that is his becomes yours. Everything he has becomes yours. His life becomes your life. His obedience before the Father becomes your obedience. His faithfulness becomes your faithfulness. His death becomes your death to sin. His resurrection becomes your resurrection to new life. His place in heaven right now before the Father is your place in heaven right now. That's why Paul says we're seated in the heavenly realms now in Christ Jesus. Even his future inheritance becomes our future inheritance that everything Christ will receive in the glory of the new creation. All that is given to us as well. And most importantly, his relationship with the Father becomes our relationship with the Father. So that now when God looks at you, he sees the face of his beloved. Now when God looks at you, he sees the face of Jesus, whom he loves desperately. And he is filled with delight. But now he's filled with love. Because your identity is now wrapped up and caught up and swept up in Jesus, you are his beloved son. You are his beloved daughter. When God looks at you, he looks into the eyes of his own son. And he has the same love for you that he has for Jesus. And you have that same intimacy with the Father now that Jesus himself had with his heavenly Father. That's the kind of relationship you have with God. If you're a Christian, that's why God can never be angry at you. Did you know that? If you're a believer, God can never be angry at you. Why not? Because he cannot be angry at his own son. And you're in his son. You're in the beloved. That's why God can never condemn you if you're a Christian. Why not? Because he could never condemn his own son. 
So he, he looks at you and he treats you the same way as his son. That's why God could never abandon you. Why not? Because he will never abandon his own son. And you are in the beloved. Everything that Jesus has is yours now. That is the extraordinary grace of God. And you can just hear Paul kind of trying to reach for the language to describe this. The words don't even exist to describe the abundance of this kind of grace. He has a go at it in verse 6 where he says, this grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And that could be translated, God has bestowed this upon us. Uh, one writer said, no, it should, it should be translated poured out. He has poured out this grace. And then another writer says, no, 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 it should be translated drenched. He's drenched us in his grace. Like he's put us under a waterfall of grace. It just keeps on going. And then Paul tries another word in verse 8 or at the end of verse 7. He says, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And that word lavished, it just means over and above. Just abundant, excessive, superfluous, superlative, above and beyond, out of all control, beyond imagination kind of grace. Just far beyond anything that we could ever possibly comprehend. God has lavished his grace on us. I remember late last year when we were planning our sabbatical trip and Anna and I knew about it and we were sort of planning it, but we hadn't told the boys yet. And one day Lawson piped up, our middle boy, and he said, hey, mum and dad, do you think next year maybe we could go on a trip? And, he, and we hadn't said anything about this. And so he was just sort of thinking, you know, maybe we could go on a trip next year. And, and so we kind of played along, you know, I said, oh, Lawson, you know, that's interesting. Um, where would you like to go? And he sort of thought for a while. And then he said, how about Thames? <laughs> he loves Thames for some reason. He wanted to go to Thames. And so we said, oh, okay, Thames, that's interesting. Um, okay, well, we'll think about that and we'll, we'll let you know how the plans go. And so then we sat the kids down at, at early in this year and told them, you know, we're going to be going to Canada and spending three months there. And you're going to have a term of not going to school and, you know, their little eyes just getting wider and wider and wider. And then a little while later, we were just joking with Lawson and saying, now, Lawson, you remember you, you want, you really, I know you wanted to go to Thames, you know. Um, we thought we'd go to Canada. Is that okay? You know, like, what do, you, what do you think? Should it be Canada? Should it be Thames? And he sort of thought again and said, oh, yeah, let, let's go to Canada. Okay. Yeah. We'll save Thames for another time. <laughs> that can be the next sabbatical. Save the best till later. But this is quite like Lawson, for him, that's what he could picture. Because we drove through Thames every summer. And that, in his mind, and God bless you if you live in Thames, it's a beautiful part of the country. That is what he could picture as an amazing holiday. And that was kind of his, his field of, of vision. And for him, the idea of uh, a trip to Canada was just so far above and beyond anything that he could really take in. It was just more than his little mind could possibly wrap itself around at that point. It was beyond his experience, and so it was beyond his frame of reference. And I wonder if somewhere in there there's a little parable of grace. You know, that we, we catch a, a, a fraction of God's grace, and we see some of it, and we appreciate some of it. And we know, those of us that are Christians, we know that God has forgiven us so that we can go to heaven when we die. And we're grateful for that. But we see only the smallest vision of what God's grace really is. And the fullness of what he has done, the full scope and extent of his grace is just so far beyond what we could possibly ever wrap our puny little minds around. 
We just can't get there because it's, it's outside of our experience. It's outside of anything we know. It's outside of everyday life. It's just so far above and beyond. We just, our imaginations are too small. Our vision is too small. Our, our frame of reference is too small to really comprehend the fullness of the lavishness of Paul's grace. And that's understand, of God's grace, but that's understandable. But Paul says, we need to ask God to enlarge our hearts so we can see a little more of it. You're never going to see all of it. You're never going to fully appreciate what God's done for you. You're never going to fully understand these words that are written here. We just can't, it's beyond us. But we can ask God to help us see a little more of it, that our field of vision could be expanded a little more than it is, so that we could catch a little bit more of a glimpse of this unbelievably lavish grace that God has poured into our lives. God hasn't just given you his grace. He's lavished his grace upon you. He hasn't just loved you. He has lavished his love upon you. And that is true regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your lifestyle, regardless of what you're going through right now. God has lavished you with his grace. He has drenched you in his grace. Everything that is in Jesus is just poured upon you by the Father. That's the grace of God. And we need to continually ask God, just give us a little more glimpse of that so that we can live in deeper gratitude, deeper thanksgiving for what God has done in our lives. So this is the middle of the story, the incredible grace of God that he's poured into our lives, poured into the life of every person who bows the knee to Jesus. But Paul's not done. He then goes on to the end of the story. And he says, let me tell you where this is all going in the end, because it's not over yet. In fact, the best is yet to come. So in verse 9, he says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And here is that goal, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So Paul says, here's where it's all going. Here's where history is heading. In the end, God is going to take everything in this broken, messed up world, and he's going to bring it all under Christ. He's going to bring it all under the authority of Christ, under the feet of Jesus, as it were, so that Christ rules over all things. He's already Lord of all, but one day he will rule directly and fully and finally over all things. So every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, every, every government will be brought under the feet of Jesus when Christ returns. Every human ruler, every prime minister and president and earthly authority, all brought under the feet of Jesus. Every family, every community, every neighborhood, all brought under the feet of Jesus. Every human life, every man, woman, and child, all brought under the feet of Christ, under the authority of Jesus. Every square inch of creation and the natural world, the universe, all of it brought under the feet of Jesus. Every principality, every power, every dominion, all brought under the feet of Christ. Every angel of heaven, every demon of hell, all brought under the feet of Jesus. Satan himself brought under the authority of Christ. Death itself, the final enemy, brought under the feet of Jesus and finally abolished. Until everything is under the feet of the Son and the Son turns around and hands all things over to God the Father so that God may be all in all. That's the picture we have. That's the picture we have of where this world's heading. So in the end, it's not this kind of consumer paradise where we get everything we've wanted and we have this amazing mansion in the sky and it's all about me. But the picture scripture gives us of the final goal to which history is moving is that this is an existence that is totally Christ-centered, where Jesus reigns and rules 
and extends his loving kingdom over all things and his glory and his shalom fill and cover the earth. That's new creation. That's the new heaven and the new earth. That's where the story is heading. And God knows, I think, that it's hard for us to picture that kind of world because we see such brokenness in the present and we see so much around us that is not in submission to Christ. We see a world that's largely rebelling against God. We see so much in our own hearts that's largely rebelling against God most of the time. And the world is not as it should be. Seems a long way from what Jesus would want it to be. But that's why God's given us a taste of the future in the present. That's why God's given us a particular gift. And Paul describes this gift in verse 13. Halfway through verse 13, he says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So this is where the Holy Spirit comes into the picture. Paul's saying the Holy Spirit is like a deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance on that day when Christ returns. So you can think of it a little bit like putting a deposit on your house. Those of you that are fortunate enough to be able to buy a house, it's like putting a deposit on the house. You put an initial sum of money down, and that's usually still an exorbitant sum of money, just the deposit itself. Maybe you put 10% down, 20% down, and that secures the purchase. So now you're the owner of the property, but you don't own it outright yet because you've got to keep paying that off for what feels like the rest of your life. Keep paying it off, which generally means paying the bank, until finally you own that property outright and you have completely paid it off. Well, there are similar sorts of transactions that happened in the ancient world, and, and Paul's saying that that's a little bit like how the Holy Spirit works. If you think about the cross, God purchased our salvation on the cross. That was the purchase. And then the Holy Spirit's the deposit that God put down for that purchase. So when God gives you the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm giving you my spirit as a deposit of what is yet to come. This is like the first installment of that future inheritance that you're going to receive. All the riches of the new creation and this world in which Christ will rule. Here's my spirit as the first installment of that. Here's the down payment on that future. The Holy Spirit is our down payment on God's future new creation. And by giving us a spirit, God is saying, the spirit guarantees that future is going to be a reality. So it's not like, wow, this seems like a really nice picture, but maybe God will bring it about. Maybe he won't bring it about. God's saying the very presence of the spirit in your life guarantees that new creation, that that's where the story is going to get to. The very fact you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart is a guarantee that God will step in and will bring everything together under the feet of Christ one day. Hard as it is to believe it, hard as it is to see it in the presence, in the present, we have the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that that will happen. The Spirit is your security that that is going to come about. And this is part of the work of the Spirit in, in our lives in the present is to point us towards that day. And point our hearts and our minds towards that day when Christ rules over, over our lives, over the world, over all things, and pull us towards that day. So it, it orientates our lives, it shapes our lives in the present. And we bring our lives into submission to Christ in the present, in anticipation of that day. The Holy Spirit is, is a living taste within you in the present of that amazing future that God is going to bring about. You have a living deposit within you right now, of that future that God's going to bring about. And we need to live 
orientated towards that future day. We've looked at the end of the story. We've seen the last page. We know how it's going to end, and that should influence how we live in the present. So that's the drama of salvation. That's the story that that Paul tells, that Scripture tells, this incredibly big, broad, sweeping story that stretches from eternity past to eternity future, the story that that we're caught up in now that that defines our lives, and we're kind of drawn along with it uh, towards that day when, when everything is under the feet of Jesus. But I want to just point one final thing out before we leave the story this morning. Uh, There is a phrase that Paul uses in here. He uses it several times, and it it really forms the binding, if you like, around the story, like the binding of a book that holds the whole thing together. There's a particular phrase he uses three times, once at the beginning, once in the middle, and once at the end. Uh, In verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verse 12 at the end, for the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14 at the end, he finishes with, to the praise of his glory. And Paul is saying the binding that holds this whole story together is the glory of God. Ultimately, that is the goal of the story. That's where its purpose is found. That's the point of this entire redemptive story of God is his Glory is his honor and his majesty. Ultimately, the point is not your personal salvation, great as that is. The point of everything is not that you get saved and you get to go to heaven when you die, great as that is. The point of this is not even the new creation that God's going to bring about. The point of the whole story is the glory of God, that God would be glorified. And on it, and, and that through all of this, really everything exists as a revelation of God's glory. It is all, this whole drama of salvation that Paul has unfolded for us, it is all one giant revelation of the glory of God. It all displays His glory. It all shows His glory, His splendor, His majesty, His sovereignty, His brilliance, His radiance, His holiness. That's what the story is demonstrating. All the way through. That's the point. Why did God choose you? Not for your own sake, but to reveal his glory. Why did God lavish his grace upon you? Not for your own sake, but to reveal his glory. Why in the end will God bring everything under the feet of Christ? Not for, not for our sake, ultimately, but for his glory. It's always all about the glory of God. And that's what Paul wants us to grasp. And that's why I think he frames this whole passage as a blessing. That's why he starts with, blessed be, praise be the God and Father. Because how else do you respond to this? How else do you respond to this story than than by doing what Paul did and worshiping God and by turning all this back to God in praise and in blessing and in worship and saying, blessed be God, praise be God, to you be all the honor, to you be all the blessing. To you be all the glory. So all these spiritual blessings that God has poured out into our lives, we ought to gather those all up and return them to him in worship. Return them to him in praise. That's our job. Not that we keep the glory for ourselves. Not that we hoard all the gifts, but we turn it all around and return it to God in praise and glory because it all reflects his glory anyway. That's the purpose of our lives, that we would be to the praise of his glorious grace. So that whatever you're going through in your life, 
whatever life is, is holding for you at the moment, this passage should evoke in you some praise towards God because God has blessed you in the spiritual realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, no matter the state of your life at the moment, no matter the state of your relationships at the moment. If you belong to Jesus, he has blessed you in the spiritual realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. No matter if you're going through the deepest valley you've ever walked at the moment, this passage should still evoke some worship from you because God has lavished his grace upon you. Regardless of how you feel right now, regardless of the circumstances around you, isn't it true that God has still lavished his grace upon us? And if all God ever did was give us his grace and then leave us to live a lonely life of suffering, he would still be unbelievably gracious because in and through Jesus, he has lavished us with his favor and given us everything that belongs to his beloved. So may our lives be for the praise of his glorious grace. May our church be for the praise of his glorious grace. May all creation resound with the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we consider all that you are and all that you have done, we just stand in wonder and we stand in awe and we really have no words. We reach for the language, but our words fail us, God. Father, we're just so moved by the thought that you loved us enough, that you've done all this for us from beginning to end. You've sent your own son to suffer and to die. And now you've given us everything that is in him. Father, we're so grateful. And we pray that you would expand our minds and, and our horizons to be able to take in a little bit more of what Paul has written here. We pray that God, even in the mundane things of life, even in the really hard things of life, that you'd give us a bigger picture and a bigger vision and draw us back to this, that we could see a fraction more of this plan that you've unfolded through the ages that is still going on and will go on into the future. God, help us to grasp a little bit more of the incredible grace that you have drenched us with in our lives. Father, in whatever this coming week holds for us, in the busyness and the highs and the lows and the joy and the pain of it all, God, help us to come back and appreciate more deeply the incredible favor and blessings and riches that you've poured into our lives. So often we take it for granted. So often we treat this so lightly and we just breeze past it and treat, treat your grace so casually. But God, would you just bring us to our knees in fresh wonder and worship and gratitude at the gifts you have bestowed upon us through Jesus. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this incredible story. And thank you that it all comes from your incredible love for us. Lord, we're deeply grateful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.